Welcome to Listen to Me, a multi-voiced exploration of the city with 21 guests sharing their personal experiences of Milan's contemporary art, architecture, design, music, fashion and literature. We explore each theme in four episodes. This is the fourth and final episode of our itinerary dedicated to design. It's a sacred place and an institution for us. I always visit that building with a bit of reverence despite the passing of time, despite the fact that I have already exhibited my work there and my work is part of the collection. It's always a sacred place for me. The sacred place that designer Alessandra Baldereschi is talking about is the Triennale di Milano, the Milan Triennale, an austere, rationalist building in Parco Sempione that has been showcasing Italian design since the 1930s. An exhibition venue, an institution and a workshop for design, art and architecture, the museum is now one of the best-known icons of Milan in the world and a place with which Milanese designers have a very strong relationship. The Triennale is, in a way, a mirror of Milan and reflects its ever-changing spirit, as design scholar Chiara Alessi confirms. In the 15-20 years that I've been going there, the Triennale has changed in an incredible way, just in terms of mm, vitality, of movement. And that, I think, is always a good thing. It was an almost repellent space at the beginning of the millennium, an inner sanctum of architecture, but not really totally hospitable. Instead, it's truly become a place for everyone and everything. So there's been a great deal of work to involve the city and more, including tourism. Of course, it's an essential place for students coming to study in Milan, for those of us involved in research and history, for designers, and also, I think, for those who come from elsewhere and want to discover the city. I also think the story of how this Palazzo dell'Arte, Palace of Art, came into being is very beautiful. It was born when the Triennale, the exhibition that took place every three years, moved from Monza to Milan. And in Milan, as Chiara Alessi tells us, the Triennale fits into Giovanni Muzio's Palazzo dell'Arte in perfect rationalist style, right next to Joe Ponti's Torre Branca or Branca Tower. Both buildings are perfectly preserved and can be visited today. I think that the wonderful thing this building has managed to do, just as an object, is to transform itself over time. But it did this from the very start, when back in the 1940s, Gio Ponti's tower became the first to emit FM radio transmissions. So the Triennale adapts a great deal to what happens over time, and does so, I think, with a great deal of character. The Triennale as a much-loved place involves not only designers, but anyone passionate about architecture and art. Let's hear from contemporary art historian Angela Vettese. The Triennale is definitely one of my favourite places, in the sense that I'm always very happy to go there. I was happy to see it come to life again because for a long time 
it wasn't active or lively. I've also been amazed by the response it gets because there have been events where more than once I haven't been able to get in because there was such a long queue. So it's a busy place. People don't think of it as something alien. However, I'd like even more. I mean, given the beauty of this building, we're talking about Milanese architecture here too. Something that's not flamboyant, but extremely worthy. This is Muzio's architecture, which borders on a fascist-style celebrativeness, but it is very beautiful and logical and combines the monumental with the intimate. The Triennale is also a favourite place of Anna Zegna, president of the Zegna Foundation. The Triennale always seems like a theatre that portrays different aspects of the city. So, from the great masters of Italian design to exhibitions that seemingly have nothing to do with it, like Vito Mancuso's plant life, but which are certainly an element of research, thought and themes that the city itself deals with, which it questions, because it's part of our daily life. So, the Triennale is definitely a favourite place. Then you go up and see the garden and maybe take a break during the summer, away from the traffic. Well, I think that's a nice gift that whoever designed the Triennale has given the city. And the Triennale is a place to meet, socialise and read, where in good weather the Milanese love to have a spritz on the grass in the Café in Giardino, the Garden Café next to one of the park's most fascinating sculptures, De Chirico's Bagni Misteriosi, or take refuge in the bookshop in bad weather to discover the latest trends in philosophy. You can visit the Triennale by taking the M1 or M2 metro line, getting off at the Cadorna stop and walking about 500 metres towards Parco Sempione, the large park behind the Castello Sforzesco, the Sforza Castle one of Milan's most popular tourist sites. And on the subject of Castello Sforzesco, within its walls is the Museo dei Mobili e delle Sculture Ligne, the Museum of Furniture and Wooden Sculptures, which chronicles the history of Italian furniture from the Middle Ages to the present day, as design historian Antipansera tells us. Un luogo a mio avviso. A place that's a bit neglected and not very well advertised, but which in my opinion should really be seen, is the Furniture Museum at the Castello Sforzesco in Milan, which is part of the Museum of Decorative Arts. Obviously, as far as I'm concerned, there's one part that interests me, not the whole of it, although it is very comprehensive and full of truly extraordinary objects. We can see the works by Carlo Bugatti, we can see those by Eugenio Quarti, and we even get to see some really interesting pieces by Gio Ponti and then a few but still enough, evidence of postmodern design by Ettore Sozzas and Alessandro Mendini. It's a little museum that holds some interesting highlights for everyone. Let's hear from Japanese fashion designer Satoshi Kuwata. I love it because I love Gioponti. And then you can see quite a few selection of that. And I remember after that, I wanted to go to Gioponti store to see. And then I bought the ceramic. I was like, wow, I can buy what I saw. 
and also like the tapestry. It's really a strange mix. Again, there's not many stuff, but one of the section is sort of mid-century-ish area that I really like, really modern. And one is like all those like tapestries and drawings, and you can also of course see how you know it's built and it's something interesting. Actually, I like it. The imposing mass of Castello Sforzesco, the Sforza Castle, and the surrounding 19th century buildings suggest austerity and severity. But hidden in one of those buildings is the studio of a brilliant designer who made playfulness and lightness his trademark. This is Achille Castiglioni, winner of nine Golden Compass Design Awards. Fourteen of his creations are in the collections at the MoMA in New York. Today, we are lucky enough to be able to go into the studio where he worked with his brother Pier Giacomo and discover the secret of his inexhaustible creativity. Curiosity. If you're not curious, forget it, Achille used to tell his students. Chiara Alessi. Even now, 20 years after Achille Castiglioni has passed away, you can still perceive this curiosity and this perennial and continuous search. There was the idea of talking about things, of questioning things, or, as Achille Castiglione used to say, leaving them there and waiting until something re-emerged one day. And this is very interesting when you visit the Castiglione Foundation. And Giovanna Castiglione is very good at recreating this dialogue between objects placed there to reflect, to settle. There are also projects where there's a really obvious kind of epiphany at some point, whereby a thought or intuition is translated into an object that's apparently a world away. And I find this kind of approach to design incredibly contemporary. Let's hear another small but very revealing detail about Achille Castiglioni. There was a great article in Ottagono by Natalia Aspasi about a conversation she had with Achille Castiglioni where she uses an image that I think is wonderful and describes him perfectly. She says that Achille Castiglioni is someone who, if he wants to explain something to you, he draws it on a sheet of paper, but in reverse, so that you see it. He doesn't need to see it. He wants you to see it. So it's as if he's drawing it from your point of view so you can understand it. He does this also when he's talking about his work. And I think that in the end, this is what good design, beautiful design should be. Something that is really put at someone's service. It's an effort a person makes so that everything becomes very simple, immediate and easy for someone else. Semplice, immediato e facile. Fondazione Achille Castiglioni can be visited by appointment and it is located a few minutes' walk from the stops Cairoli and Cadorna on the Red Metro Line M1. To book a visit, please see the Foundation's website. But that's not all. A few minutes' walk from the Triennale in Via Mario Pagano is the studio of another great designer, Franco Albini. While Achille Castiglioni was exuberant, Franco Albini preferred silence and restraint. Yet both reached the very highest levels, 
deeply influencing the design history of the city itself. For example, we owe the meticulous design of Metro Line 1, which has been a model for many other subways worldwide since the 1960s, including New York City, to Franco Albini in collaboration with Bob Norda. Let's hear from Chiara Alessi. The great thing about the Franco Albini Foundation, in my opinion, is that you can see this kind of staging when you look at one project around another in sequence. It's as if it were truly part of the objects that talk to each other. Then, of course, a visit is always focused both on the figure, the person, but also the historical context. So, why is it interesting to see these places? Because when you go to the Franco Albini Foundation, they explain to you where you are, where in Milan you are. And they explain to you that at the time Franco Albini was designing his transparent glass radio with visible mechanisms, there were horses outside, because at that time people went around Milan on horseback. And meanwhile, he was dreaming up a design that Apple could have made. So there's this placement within a place, not only a geographical place, but also a place in history. I think it creates this spark that offers you this wonderful insight. The Fondazione Franco Albini can be visited by appointment and is located just a few minutes from the stops Pagano and Conciliazione on the Red Metro Line M1. To book a visit, please see the Foundation's website. Now we're heading towards Chinatown, Milan's most famous multi-ethnic neighbourhood, centred around the pedestrianised street Via Paolo Sarpi. Here we find the Adi Design Museum, a Milanese museum that displays the winning designs of the Compasso d'Oro, the Golden Compass Award, established in 1954 after an idea by Joe Ponti, and still the oldest and most important design award in the world. Let's hear what designer Luca Nichetto, art director of La Manufactura, thinks. The Adi Design Museum is like going to Hollywood to visit Oscar winners. I don't know how to put it. The Compasso d'Oro is the Oscar of design, although unfortunately, from my point of view, it's no longer what it was 20 years ago. But it's still the most well-organized prize, monitored, I think, in the right way, which has adapted to the times by discovering new types of design. I really appreciate this idea of giving the Compasso d'Oro to products that may have been made many years ago, but which have not won it for some reason, or even giving the Compasso d'Oro for their career to people who have actually had a major impact on what we all do. Once again, here's Chiara Alessi talking about the Adi Design Museum's collection. The Adi, as a museum, is an archive revealed, which, in my opinion, is a really interesting feature. Namely, that the collection makes it a museum you come back to again and again, because it's full of details that are not exhausted in a caption or information. But each one offers a path to an ever deeper and ever-changing level. So, 
there are really some delights, some designs that are also related to history, graphic design, packaging and photography. You could create a journey through the Addy that's always inspired by a different principle because it really is like opening a book of images and being able to read them like an abacus according to many, many criteria. It's an absolutely extraordinary collection. Of course, it's only the objects that have won the Compasso d'Oro, but still it immediately gives, in my opinion, the feeling of what has happened over time. What types of design won awards in the 1950s and then in the 1960s? What types of design win awards today? But also, simply, the way in which the jury changes. Who were the judges in the 70s? Who are they today? What's happening? And this interpretation is immediately visible when you enter the museum, isn't it? So, from that point of view, it's a museum of Milan's history to all effects. It tells us about design, but through what was happening at the same time on a political, social and economic level. A livello politico, a livello sociale, a livello anche economico. Chiara Alessi talks about the former factory and the special neighborhood in which the Adi Design Museum is located, Chinatown. The factory that produced electricity, I think, is a really appropriate image. And also in terms of its geographical location. I find it interesting too that it's located between Chinatown, a new area of Milan, even though it's been there for many years as a neighbourhood, and the Cimitero Monumentale, Chinatown. It's an extremely dynamic area, which is continuously transforming. Unfortunately, also increasing house prices in this neighbourhood, and yet representing a bit of the world that for years the Italian design world thought of as an enemy, namely the world of production from Asia. And yet perfectly bordering on all this vitality, energy and colour, that is Chinatown. On the other side, there's the Monumental Cemetery, probably one of the most beautiful and important museums in Milan. Now we come to the last stop on our design itinerary, the Cimitero Monumentale, or Monumental Cemetery. It's a real open-air museum where art, culture, religion and modernity combine. Due to the very high artistic value of the sculptures and architecture inside, the Monumental Cemetery is one of the most important in Italy and Europe on a cultural level. The resting place of great figures from Milan and beyond, including the unforgettable Alessandro Manzoni and Salvatore Quasimodo, Nobel Prize winner for poetry. But what links the Monumental Cemetery to the theme of design? We ask Chiara Alessi. I hope I don't sound blasphemous, but the Monumental Cemetery is a collection that's not only linked to the world of sculpture, but also to design. For example, the Monument to the Fallen in the Nazi extermination camps by the BPPR architectural practice is one of the cornerstones of new Italian design in the modern era. All the great masters of design are buried in the Monumental Cemetery. So it's like there's a kind of 
animistic interpretation, um, as if their spirits actually roamed that area. Both Cimitero Monumentale and the Adi Design Museum are very close to the stop Monumentale on the Purple Metro Line M5. Our itinerary dedicated to design ends here, but in the next itineraries, we'll take you on a discovery of fascinating and unexpected aspects of Milanese creativity. To listen to the next episodes, follow us on your favorite podcast platforms or visit www.casemuseo.it where you can also buy the Casa Museo card to visit the Poldi Pezzoli Museum, the Bagatti Valsecchi Museum and Villa Necchi Campiglio at a discount price. The Boschi di Stefano House Museum is free to visit. <laughs>